The following presentation comes from The Way, Discovering and Living the Catholic Faith. The topics covered are The Church and New Creation, The Great Story Part 3, where Dr. Vern Steiner and Chad Steiner walk through the New Testament to show general themes and an overview of the narrative of the life of Jesus Christ and its continuation in the work of the church and the culmination of the history of salvation when God makes all things new. Well, this is week three of what we call the great story. Uh, Chad began a couple of weeks ago looking at creation and, yeah, let's get a handout to Paul back there. Uh, creation and corruption. I think probably most in here are familiar enough with the biblical story to know that uh, creation is where the Bible begins. But something terrible happened to creation. We call it the fall, or we've used the word corruption just to stay with the sea theme. And, uh, and Adam and Eve, our first parents, fall into sin and corruption uh, invades the human race. But God doesn't scrap the plan. He actually comes up with a wonderful program that we, uh, we cover under this big term, covenant. And I'll say more about that after we pray, but that's where we are this evening. We're going to just do a little recap, a little review, and then head into the New Testament, a little bit more about Christ, and then the church, and then Chad's going to come up, and we're tag-teaming tonight, and uh, take us to the end. So we, we get kind of a couple of things in these three weeks. We get a bit of an overview of Scripture. We get a kind of thematic summary of the storyline of the Bible. Uh, and hopefully some familiarity with uh, uh, just uh, what goes on in the mass readings uh, in our Catholic settings where we have readings from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, and of course a responsorial psalm. So hopefully this study will inform what goes on in our mass, that part of the mass. And uh, with that, let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, thanks for the joy of being back together again, and to pray that our evening will be uh, helpful, enlightening, uplifting, encouraging, instructive. Uh, I pray, Father, that you will uh, bless our time together, send us the Holy Spirit to help us to think your thoughts and to uh, hear what you have to say and to receive it, uh, to welcome it into our lives and to live accordingly. Thank you, Father, for each person in this room and wherever each one is on this journey of faith. Lord, uh, take us where we are and bring us to where you would have us to be. And may this class session be part of what you use in that process. Thank you for the spirit of love that permeates this room and uh, just the joy, the peace we have as we're together from week to week. Continue, Lord, to uh, make it a community that, um, that puts on display the God that you are. 
We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, a little recap, um, going back to how the Bible's put together. I asked Greg a little bit ago if he would come up and recite all the books of the Bible for us. And he said, no, but I'll play the song. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. How's it going? Anybody working on this? But, uh, but let's just review a few that probably most in here know. If you don't, that's okay. Don't feel bad about it. Genesis, let's go. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's next? Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Oh, we're doing great. Let's stop right there. Let's stop right there. So God puts the program in place, creation, corruption, then this program of a covenant where God makes uh, promises, commitments to his people, and asks of them certain things. And um, once we get beyond the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, if you're going to have a great nation, a people through whom will come the Messiah, there has to be a land in which they can live. So Joshua becomes the story of settling in the land. But every good nation needs a king, right? At the end of, if you read through Judges, it's one of the most depressing parts of the whole Bible. Nothing's going right. I mean, even the good guys are awful. It's the sort of book you don't want to read at night. It'll give you nightmares. But toward the end of the book, you have a thematic statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So then that raises the question. Not raises the question. It just emphasizes the point. We need a king. But not just any old king will do. We need a certain kind of king, a righteous king, a king who can lead God's people toward righteousness. So who will this king be? So you turn the page to the book of, Ju uh, book of Ruth. And in Ruth, the very last word in that lovely story is David, because someone is born in the Ruth story who ends up being uh, a descendant of, of David, or an ancestor of David. And um, so we're expecting, oh, David might be that king. Turn the page, Samuel. It's in the books of Samuel that we meet David. And you keep turning the page, what happens to, to the kingdom that David establishes? Books of Kings give us the whole story. So you see how the Bible is put together in a meaningful way. So let's review one more time up to Samuel, all right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. We can go one more, Kings, all right? Good enough, hey, we're learning. If you jump all the way to the New Testament, probably we can all get going on the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, all right. We're gonna land there this evening just for a moment. Very good. Keep it up. It's fun. Make it fun. And, but as you do so, try to think through, using the notes from last week, try to think through how the, the overview, the, the progression of, of thought um, continues to, to build. With that in mind, 1.2 is a repeat from last week. It's the great story summarized in one great big long sentence. The Bible begins with the story of creation, which having suffered corruption in the fall will be restored through God's covenant program with specially called persons. And those who are especially noted in the Old Testament will be Abraham, Moses, and David, and people, that is a nation, namely Israel, a program ultimately embodied and fulfilled in the redemptive mission of Christ, the incarnation of Israel's Messiah 
who by the Holy Spirit continues his mission in the world through the incarnation of the church, the church being the visible body of Christ. So we use the word incarnation of the church. And who by his own glorious return brings the cosmic spiritual drama played out on the stage of heaven and earth to a just and final consummation, culminating in restored creation in a perfected and everlasting kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I want to continue to, to encourage you to review that from time to time. It seems to me that it just makes sense of the whole Bible from start to finish in terms of its thematic progression. Then that's visualized in a, in a kind of concentric sort of pattern in part uh, 1.3. And again, this is all review from, from last week. With that, let's go to number two a brief introduction to the New Testament. The expression New Testament appears eight times in the Bible, and I give you the references there. But interestingly, in none of these passages does it actually label the collection of books we identify as the New Testament. Rather, the, the term New Testament in the Bible refers to the New Covenant. Testament, covenant, same, same word, basically in which the entire covenant program of God comes to fulfillment in Christ. In this light, it is especially informative, this is fascinating to me, that Jesus associates the expression new covenant with the Eucharist as, in Luke 22, the new covenant or testament in my blood, as if to say that the New Testament is a sacrament before it names the document in which we read about that sacrament. The Eucharist, that is the New Testament, the New Covenant, encapsulates and signifies the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant program. Here is where the provisions, prescriptions, person, place, path of life, and promise of all the previous covenants, that's all from last week, converge and find their completion. As a body of scripture, then, the New Testament refers to the sacred writings associated with this sacrament as the completion of the great story centered in Christ. Number two, as scripture, the New Testament comprises the second and smaller part of the Bible. It's about a fourth of the biblical revelation consisting in 27 books embraced by all Christians as belonging to the biblical canon. Unlike the Old Testament, where Catholics and Protestants uh, have different Bibles, that's not the case in the New Testament. Catholics and Protestants all read the same New Testament, all same 27 books. It's probably safe to say that most Christians, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, feel more at home and at least some of these 27 New Testament books that in many, if not most, of the 46 or 39 for Protestants Old Testament books, with the exception, perhaps, of Psalms. Among the possible reasons for this, we might cite the relative length, the Old Testament's, you know, like three times longer, the prominence of the Gospels, because these get special attention in our Catholic uh, masses, uh, perhaps not so much in the Protestant world, at least certain parts of the Protestant world, 
where they're so much uh, more fond of Paul's writings than even the Gospels, it seems. And I see some heads that are bobbing here. Um, but in, in the Catholic world, the Gospels get kind of pride of place. A lot of things happen around the Gospel reading. The kissing of the Bible, uh, holding it up, um, incense, uh, the Alleluia, a whole lot of, th and only the priest reads the, the gospel. A, a whole lot of things draw attention to the gospels. And so that just makes them a bit more familiar to us, maybe as Catholics. The temporal proximity, after all, the New Testament's written at a time much closer to us than many of those Old Testament books. And the perceived relevance of letters written directly to churches and individuals. You know, so if here is, is Paul writing a letter, say, to the church at, at Corinth, that sounds a lot more um, familiar uh, territory to us than, say, the Book of Kings back there. Uh, and I think there may be uh, is, is misunderstanding on the issue of relevance here, but at least it's perceived that way. So I think for those reasons, probably most Christians, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, uh, except for the book of Psalms, feel more familiar with the New Testament than the Old. And that might or might not be your experience. It's kind of a generalization. Number three, in Christ Jesus, this is 3.1, God fulfills all his covenant promises by which he redeems and restores the creation which humans have corrupted. Jesus, this is why we call it the great story. Jesus Christ is the father of a new humanity. It's called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians. The promised seed of the woman that we learned about a couple weeks ago when Chad led us through Genesis early chapters. And the son of David, the son of Abraham from the first verse of the New Testament, whose arrival we have awaited since the first chapters of the biblical story and in whose form that entire story has been figured. Christ, we could say, is the apex, the pivotal point, the center and heart of the biblical drama. He is the fullness of divine revelation, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In his birth, life, ministry, message, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father, Christ did a whole bunch of things. Completes the story, the Old Testament begins, concludes the drama the Old Testament leaves unfinished, fulfills the promises the Old Testament declares, accepts the roles of Old Testament of the Old Testament defined, accepts the roles the Old Testament defined, prophet, priest, king, wise man, suffering servant, endorses the ethic the Old Testament teaches, embodies the God the Old Testament reveals, and accomplishes the mission the Old Testament announced, God's blessing plan for the whole world, creation redeemed, and the word made flesh. In this grand divine drama, the great story of scripture, the four New Testament gospels, or the fourfold gospel, as it's sometimes called, occupy a certain pride of place as reflected in the church's liturgy, but not in the sense that here is where we first encounter the revelation of Christ. Indeed, the entire Bible, as we've been saying for two weeks, is a two testament witness to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we read the Bible correctly, we will have been learning about Christ from Genesis 1 onward. 
we might think of the Gospels relative to the rest of the Bible in a way that's analogous to how we regard the presence of God in the tabernacle or the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Just as the omnipresent, word meaning everywhere present, God can choose to locate his full or special presence in the tabernacle's holy of holies, and just as Christ, who is present and available everywhere, can manifest his real presence in the Eucharist, so the one who's revealed in all the pages of sacred scripture is most fully and clearly encountered in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's just a kind of an introduction to um, uh, Christ in the, in, as revealed in the New Testament. One more paragraph, then I'm going to make a few additional comments and then turn it over to Chad. In order to continue and to complete his mission in the world, Jesus founded the church by the Holy Spirit on the apostles as the incarnate presence of his body in the world. This is the book of Acts, the founding of the church by the activity of the Holy Spirit through the apostles who go here, there, and everywhere and establish the church to be the ongoing, shall we say, incarnate presence of Christ in the world. The church is guided in its life and liturgy by the Holy Spirit through some of those same apostles whom Jesus authorized to write letters of instruction, and in some cases, correction. So this is the rest of the New Testament up to the last book, Romans all the way through Jude, 21 letters. These 21 letters or epistles, once addressed to first century local congregations and their leaders, comprise about one third of the New Testament, where they address the church in all times and places. In their present context and function within the canon of scripture, there's that word, the New Testament letters are meant to be read in light of and as contribu contributing to the overarching story from creation to new creation. Just pause there for a second and let's just review that concentric pattern. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Corruption, Genesis 3 through 11. The whole elaborate fourfold covenant program of God, Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament. Christ, right at the center, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What's Christ do? He establishes the church to carry on his program. Romans all the way through Jude. And then because everything got corrupted back in the beginning, it's got to be set right. God's got to undo, as it were, the effects of the fall. So that's going to come up in Revelation and then at the end, the new creation. So the church is part of this whole program of God of restoring and redeeming and reclaiming creation. The church is what Jesus leaves behind to carry on that great uh, work, that great mission. And then picking up. Uh, in other words, the actual interpretive framework for their biblical meaning, I'm talking about all these letters, is supplied by their location within the Bible more than by their respective independent origins in first century historical geographical settings. The most informing context for understanding St. Paul's letter to the Romans, for example, is the rest of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the Gospels, and Acts. 
not an attempted reconstruction of what was happening in the church at Rome in those days, and certainly not what was happening in the 16th century, which I think is Luther's error. So here's what I'm trying to say by that. Sometimes people get this idea that if I'm going to understand Romans, I have to dig deeply into what was going on in first century Rome. Well, that can be helpful to an extent, but your better context for understanding Romans is, what's the storyline of the Bible? Because Romans is advancing the storyline of the Bible. And uh, where Luther went wrong in part was sort of imposing upon Romans what he thought was going on in the problem of the church in the 16th century. And, and that's to impose upon a biblical book something that's outside the biblical book. The first century biblical book of Romans is, isn't contexted in the 16th century Europe. It's contexted in the rest of the Bible. So all of that to say something very, very um, simple, actually. We become better Bible readers by reading the whole Bible. And in the Catholic Church, we're really blessed to have readings from all parts of the Bible because every part relates somehow to every other part. And so uh, it's a wonderful gift to us to have readings from Old Testament, from New Testament, other than the Gospels, from the Gospels, and then also from, from Psalms, and to see how all of these relate in advancing the great story of Christ. Just a couple of uh, final wrap-up comments. There are 21 letters in the New Testament. 13 of those are credited to St. Paul. And then uh, the remaining ones are... are more generally addressed, and they're often called the Catholic letters or the general letters. Those are the ones that end the New Testament up to the book of Revelation. If you'll keep this in mind, it'll be very helpful in reading and understanding the New Testament letters. Most of them are structured according to a, sort of a twofold uh, structure. The first parts of the letters usually address uh, content teaching. Uh, sometimes we call it doctrine. Uh, the, the second parts of the letters typically give then practical applications. So, so here's the truth, here's how you live it out. A great example would be Ephesians, one of my favorite letters. It's got six chapters. The first three just lay out in beautiful, beautiful description what the church is all about. The latter three chapters, four, five, and six, now if that's what the church is all about, then here's how we need to live, okay? This is how we live that out. Uh, and many of the letters are structured that way. So uh, that, that's just a little tip on how to read the New Testament letters. We have a whole session coming up, I forget which week it is, on the church, why we uh, believe in the church or why we are part of the church. So we'll obviously have a lot more to say about the church at that time. My objective this evening was very, uh, very specific to show how the gospels and the letters of the New Testament fit into the overarching storyline of scripture, the great story. And so uh, I'm going to leave it there because the story doesn't end with these letters. We have the book of Revelation, and Chad's going to give us some insights into that book. So it's all going somewhere. And, by the, and eventually you get there in the last chapter. But the ultimate end 
And I want to make sure that you understand what I don't mean by that word. So I've got it in little quotes there, and I've got you a couple definitions. By end, I mean the ultimate aim or the ultimate goal or what's ultimately achieved, but not the ultimate conclusion, like the terminus, you know. This is where it all stops. That's not what I mean. Um, in fact, there's a sense in which when we get to the end of the story, we're just now beginning eternity kind of thing. Okay, so it's not the end of anything in the normal sense. But the ultimate aim of it, of Christ's mission, is the consummation of his reign in the world. In the world. In the world. Let that sink in. Not just somewhere in some disembodied, ethereal, you know, cloud environment. In the world and throughout creation. And he does this through the church, which is the subject matter, this bringing things ultimately to consummation. That's the subject matter of Revelation 1 to 20. Revelation has 22 chapters, so we're just taking the first massive chunk, talking about that for a bit. Since the grand scriptural drama is played out on the stage, I sometimes say on the stage of history, where the theater itself is like the cosmos, heaven and earth, it's an analogy, you know, you can move it around a little bit. We could say the stage of heaven and earth in a cosmic conflict between God and Satan and between good and evil. The sin that got everything going the wrong direction, it corrupted God's creation along with the serpent and all the evil forces that rebelled against God, against his people and against his program, all that's got to be brought to a final judgment. And what, where are we, right? Where are we right now? We're in the midst of this tension, this, this resol the resolution of this conflict. Uh, even while we await the ultimate completion of it at the return of Jesus, who will reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords, God's kingdom finally come, his will finally done, as we pray in the Our Father all the time, on earth, as it is in heaven. I don't know if that, if that just kind of sails by when you pray it, but we're asking for, for all of this to be completed on earth, not just to escape the world in something called the rapture, leave it all behind, let it all get burned up. No, God's going to fix this. That's exciting, actually. We're in the middle of where he's working it out. As we confess in the creed, he will come again, that is, he will return into the world in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So let's think a little bit about that as we think about the book of Revelation. Uh, anybody read the book of Revelation ever? Okay, a couple of you. Dip your toe in the water anyway. It's kind of a strange book, isn't it? It's, it's hard to understand. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try and demystify it a little bit. The very first verse of the book identifies the content of the book as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to think about that in two ways with you. We could take it as, and they're both relevant, I think. We could take it as saying that the function, this is number one, the function of the book, the purpose of the book, is to reveal Jesus Christ to those who receive the content of the book. So in other words, it's an unveiling of Jesus. And that's true. But there's another dimension to it. The content of the book belongs to Jesus Christ. It's like, this is the pen of Chad. It belongs to me. So the revelation of Jesus Christ is the unveiling of Jesus, but it's also his. He owns it. And that's the point I'm making in two. He owns it and is the one ultimately 
producing it and delivering it through John's pen. He's the writer. Same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, the church confesses, is the guy that wrote the book of Revelation too. That's debated in some corners, but doesn't matter to us. Putting these together then, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a book that reveals Jesus, and Jesus himself is the one doing the revealing, specifically to John, who then writes it all down for us, for all future generations. To the degree that Jesus, so let's, th- let's think about this in, in the relationship with the Gospels, because the Gospels are all about revealing Jesus too, right? To the degree that Jesus is also what they're about, what the Gospels are about, then their main subject matter, we could say, uh, sorry, what the Gospels were about, that is that it's their main subject matter. We could then say that the agenda of the Gospels is therefore the same as the agenda of Revelation, even if the two literatures fulfill their agenda very differently. They, They read very differently. They sound a lot different. The Gospels present Jesus, his incarnation, ministry, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, from an earthly perspective, kind of an on-the-ground, you know, dusty feet. The way we humans normally experience and view things. And then Revelation comes along, same subject matter, a lot of the same subject matter anyway, but it presents that subject matter, Jesus, and the same events, many of them, from a heavenly perspective. Here's what it looks like if you were in heaven, seeing the cosmic significance of this. Hence all the fantastical language flashes of lightning and thunderbolts and weird creatures flying about and wars and things, right, in this cosmic realm. That's what's going on in the cosmic eternal realm while in the earthly realm, Jesus is doing his ministry, preaching the gospel, going toward the cross, um, suffering his death, rising from the dead and all the other people rising from the dead at, at the same time, well, at the same time he's dying and then ascending into heaven. There's, a, there's, a, there's an on-the-ground perspective of it, and then there's a cosmic perspective. That's what we get here. Where? Where is this book taking place? What's the setting? Well, in verse 10, if you had your Bible, I guess I have it quoted for you here. I, John, the one writing the book, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So let's think about this. What are we being told here? It was on the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the Holy Day, the day to be kept holy, which any bishop, which John was, following the scriptures, would do. He would celebrate. Even though he's in exile on the island of Patmos, he can still celebrate as a bishop. He can celebrate the Mass for himself because he is the fullness of the church as a bishop. He doesn't need a parishioner. He doesn't need you or me to do it. The early Christians regarded the new Sabbath as the first day of the week when they gather for liturgy to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. And this is where John is. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he has this vision as he's celebrating the mass. And the book of Revelation is what he sees. So imagine that. I mean, next time you read the book, realize he's he's in the middle of the mass and this is what he sees. He hears a voice, a loud voice like a trumpet. And upon turning to look, he observes one like a son of man. So this amazing imagery, but it looks like also at the same time a normal person. So a divine human person. In the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now when you go into the sanctuary or into the nave uh, through the doors, you look up toward the altar, what do you see? 
six candelabras, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a seventh candle. It's the indicator up on the wall or hanging from the ceiling that Christ is present. So we have seven. Mm -hmm. The six, uh, we talked about the symbolism when Father Clark did the, uh, did the tour. Another uh, significance of the six is that they represent six churches. We are in the midst in unity with six churches. We ourselves are the seventh, hence the seventh candle. Seven is a, a number for completeness. So in the seven candles, we have a representation of the whole church. We in the midst of it, right? Um, in Revelation 2 and 3, first, the second and third chapters, you have letters to the seven churches. Or we could even say, in the same way we say four gospels or fourfold gospel, one gospel, four parts, kind of, or four, same thing with the seven letters to the seven churches. It's, it's not seven different churches, but the one church with a, going out in seven, a seven-fold letter that kind of addresses everything. So anyway, this is where he turns and he looks and he sees a son of man amongst the seven golden lampstands. So again, if you're looking up toward the sanctuary, you see the lampstands, what's right beyond the lampstands? The tabernacle, where we confess as Catholics that the one like a son of man has come to dwell with us. So your experience of reading Revelation should be similar as you're discovering right now as I'm explaining it to walking into church, walking into mass. Given these signposts, that is the author identifying the occasion of his vision as on the very day and in relation to the very state in which one would be at the mass, that is in the spirit, uh, caught up in this cosmic drama, and even among the accoutrements of it, uh, the lampstands or the candelabras, the incense and the rest of it, we might infer, and probably should, that the vision of Revelation stands in relation to what happens at the Mass. So next time we enter the church to dip our fingers in holy water, to genuflect, uh, to, to kneel down toward what the tabernacle holds behind the altar, namely our Lord, just past the lampstands, and then to present ourselves, not merely to receive what is brought out from that tabernacle, but to be overtaken by it, to be consumed like John, by what we are about to consume, you know, to be overwhelmed. Next time we do all this, let's consider the much more significant and cosmic situation that we're entering. Revelation helps us understand how big a deal it really, really is. The Mass is that moment where the dusty experience uh, of the life of Christ interfaces, kind of locks fingers with the cosmic significance of it all. And we get to experience that in the Mass. We get to experience the collision of the Gospels and Revelation together at the same time. History and eternity, all at the same time. We have a, a chart. Um, we talked about the, we've, we've talked a lot about Genesis through Revelation being one kind of unified story. And just so you can get a, a sense about how interrelated the whole thing is by looking at the poles, the beginning and the end. Just look at a few of these. Uh, whereas Genesis opens with this highly structured seven-day account, Revelation opens with a highly structured seven-letter account. I mentioned it a little bit ago. Chapters two and three are seven letters. Um, so big emphasis on seven and 12, also in Revelation. In the, in the beginning, we read in Genesis 1.1, we read, it is done or it is finished, which you've heard Jesus say, 
but it's a kind of a, a, a big thing in, in the latter chapters of Revelation as well. The heavens and the earth were created in Genesis 1, 1. New heavens and a new earth come into view in Genesis 21. And that raises a question. Uh, different heavens and a different earth? Or the same ones renewed? How do we understand this word new? So I want to come back to that in a little bit if we have time. Oh, I do. I do. I have, that's not the only typo. Yeah, so on the right column, scribble my gen out and write rev. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, let's go down, skip the next one with land C. Uh, the initial lighting in Genesis 1 to 3, which I think I explained was the second person of the Trinity, right? And, uh, and God said, let there be light. That's not light, the moon, the sun, the moon, the stars. That, those aren't created till day four. This is the second person of the Trinity, which is then taken over. His, his lighting up the workspace, so to speak, is then delegated to the sun, the moon, the stars for light in Genesis 1.14. But in Revelation, right across the way there, the sun, the moon, and the stars are replaced by God's glory and the lamp of the Lamb. So Jesus comes back and resumes his very first role or function in, uh, in, in terms of creation. He, he steps back into the role of lighter with the Father. And so the new city doesn't need sun, moon, and stars because God and the Lamb are its light, just like at the very beginning. Uh, skip another line down to river. There's a river that flows through the Garden of Eden. Similarly, there's a river that flows down the middle of the new creation, new Jerusalem. There's no deceiver that's present. And similarly, in Revelation 20, that's all done away with. There's a tree of life that's created and denied. Uh, not they're not allowed to eat of it after they fall, right? But the tree of life is regained and its leaves are for the healing of the nation. Now it's on the menu. <laughs> you get to eat of it in Revelation. The serpent we meet in uh, Genesis 3 is unmasked in Revelation 12. There's the institution of the curse, and I, there's my other typo. It should be Genesis, or Gen 3. There's nothing in between the N and the colon, if you see there. It should be 3, verses 14 and 17. And that curse is abolished. And on it goes. Maybe it's the last line there. The fellowship that's broken with Creator God, now people get to see God face to face. There's a mystery in Genesis uh, when God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. To what extent were they able to experience Him face to face? It's not told to us. We don't know. We're just left to wander. But it's clarified beautifully in Revelation where we get to see God face to face, his essence as he truly is, with no static or distraction. There's no death anymore as there was. We read in Genesis 5, there's death all over the page and it gets worse and worse and worse. No more of that in Revelation 21 in the new heavens and new earth. So on and so forth. The story that began with creation, so that's, this is the, so I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. All, all of this, um, these, these missiles there, <laughs> firing of, of thematic elements uh, from Genesis are coming to land in Revelation. Everything, all the loose ends are being tied up. And that's happening throughout the book of Revelation, but especially in the last two chapters, which is where we, we have the last of our, our big uh, alliterated theme words, creation restored. So the story that began with creation ends 
with that very creation restored. That's written very carefully. The same one that Jesus initially, that God made initially through his word, which is Jesus, uh, is resurrected and restored, fixed at the reappearing of Jesus in the last days. Having put an end to all rebellion, God will dwell forever with his redeemed people in the midst of a new heaven and a new earth in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. I'm using the language of chapter 21 here. Uh, Adorned for her husband. At last, the dwelling of God will be with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them as he was in the garden of the original creation. But now, uh, with no more question about how intimate that initial exchange was, this is face-to-face participating in the same unity. The story that's introduced in Genesis 1 and 2 concludes in Revelation 21 and 22. These two sets of two chapters each function like the bookends in a cosmic theodrama of Scripture. Everything between the opening chapters and the closing, every book and every part of every book, advances the plot of this grand story, thereby contributing to our knowledge of God, of what he's up to, and of what it means to live in his world on his terms, as we are en route to dwelling in his eternal and glorious presence. I thought I was going to be much worse on time than I actually am. So we are going to look at this addendum I've got for you, this question about new heavens, new earth, all right? We read in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Those are my italics, of course. The Bible doesn't use italics. And the sea was no more. Does this mean that God eventually gets sick and tired of the initial creation that he made, wads it up into a ball and throws it away, or in the case of the the language of Peter and Revelation toward the end of the Bible, the language of fire, burning, burns it all up and throws it away? Or is uh, fire, like water in Genesis, an agent of cleansing and purging out the filth, the things that need to be purged away, such that it's cleaned and refashioned and remade. And you can kind of tell that that's where I'm heading. (laughs) This theme of new heavens and new earth actually doesn't start in Revelation. It's already a theme that's up and running in the Old Testament in books like Isaiah, twice at the end of Isaiah, where we read, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's chapter 65, 17, but then right around the corner. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. This is something that God is doing in the midst of Israel and Israel's relationship with the nations, even in the present way back in Isaiah's day. He is in the midst of making this new heavens and new earth. So what's going on in Isaiah is not that God's wadding up the old heavens and the earth and and heavens as we see it and throwing them away. No, he's remaking them through what he is doing with Israel in the midst of the nations. He's creating a new people and he's using that people to refashion 
the whole world, bit by bit by bit. It's a slow process. So just as they, which I'm making, uh, they'll remain before me, just as you and your descendants and your name shall remain. So I'm not throwing you away, and I'm not throwing them away. It's, uh, it's, I'm remaking all of you. The reason, or the way that I know that this is what the Catholic Church, uh, how, it, how it sees it, is from two, two especially, there's several, I just chose two sections in the Catechism, 1042 and 1043. So here the way that the, that the Church explains this. At the end of time, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. After the universal judgment, we're talking about the same time frame here as, as Revelation's perspective. The righteous will reign forever with Christ, glorified in body and soul. The universe itself will be renewed. Important word, renewed. Not thrown away and exchanged for a new version, but renewed itself. The church will receive her perfection only in the glory of heaven. When will come the time of the renewal of all things? This is from a document called Lumen Gentium. That's what LG means at the end of this little quote with the little font. Lumen Gentium. It's a document that came out of Vatican II. When will come the time of the renewal of all things? At that time, together with the human race, the universe itself, which is so closely related to man and which attains its destiny through him, will be perfectly reestablished in Christ, not thrown away in exchange for a new one, but reestablished itself. And then finally, next section, next paragraph in the Catechism, sacred scripture calls this mysterious renewal, which will transform humanity and the world, new heavens and a new earth. So you can see how the church right here is taking a stand. When we read new heavens and new earth, like in 2 Peter and Revelation, we're to think in terms of renewal, not throwing away and grabbing another one. Um, Oh, here we are. Okay, so that's the end of my notes. Um, Just another point to ponder in connection with this. Is it scrubbing it and tossing it and starting over? uh, Creation 2.0? Or is it rather a renewal? Another point to ponder is, um, is how Jesus himself and his own story is at the center of all this and establishes for us kind of the, the answer key, the interpretive key for these kinds of questions. What happens to Jesus as he's taken down from the cross, wrapped and put in the tomb, right? And then three days later, who comes out? Is it a different person? Well, in one sense, yes. He's different but same. And he's so, he's so different as to be unrecognizable until he shows that he's actually the same one. Thomas especially, who, uh, who must see the nail scars in his hands and in the spear in his side to, to verify, yes, it indeed is my Lord and my God. That establishes for us uh, a trajectory, an understanding of what God is up to on a larger scale. It was the same one that went into the ground, that came out of the ground, now uh, restored to, to life, resurrected, and made so glorious as almost to be unrecognizable by those you know, until he reveals himself. So also, what God did with Christ, what the Father has done with the Son, is what he is doing with the whole cosmos. It's undergoing its own purgation, its own fall, its own passion and death, in a sense. 
but he is faithful to rescue it, to resurrect it, and to repristinate it, to make it pristine again, right? And uh, Scott Hahn shared a beautiful image of um, when, uh, when the priest takes the host and through the prayers of the consecration, uh, Jesus, through the ministry of the priest, performs a miracle and transubstantiates, changes the substance of what he's holding from bread and wine to the body and blood of our Lord. That's what, while the priest is doing that with his hands over, that's what Jesus is doing with the entire cosmos. He is transubstantiating it into his own life so that it can participate, so that we in it can participate with him in his life. He's not throwing it away. He's redeeming it, resurrecting it, and transubstantiating it into um, the shape that he always had in mind to make it. So, did you want to... That, that's it for my section. If, if there are any questions, I guess I can, if I can clarify anything. Yeah. All right. She asked me this question. I don't... I, I, didn't, I didn't know. I don't know my Bible as well as you do. Um, so, we started talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Yes. And she asked me, is this like Noah and the ark? Where, do, where does Noah and the ark fall within... So, it's what, the story itself is yeah. way back in Genesis. Okay. Yeah. Um, six, seven, eight... Okay. And nine. But that was kind of like a reset also. Right? Yeah, but notice, so that's a re- great question. It repeats like this, the sea is gone. Oh, I see. Yeah, so there's, there's sea is no more. Actually, there's an interesting connection way back in the creation where, if I recall correctly, um, the light is given to shine uh, on the earth and to give light on the earth, to light things up. And, um, and no mention is made of it shining on the sea. And it's interesting. If you think about light in connection with God and God's favor, he looks with favor, he shines light. Darkness is bad. Uh, we, we associate darkness with evil, with, the, with uncreated. Um, darkness is over the surface of the deep. This is something God fixes by giving light. right? And he separates the light from the darkness. And, uh, and it's, but the light, as it's, as it's made, the sun, moon, and the stars, to shine on the earth and all the things that are on the earth, but not on the sea. Keep reading in other books like Job, uh, where bad things come out of the sea. Violence, chaos, sea monsters that are almost uh, God's nemeses, the challengers to his dominion, come out of the sea. And in Revelation especially, the beast comes out of the sea to, to duke it out with God in this final battle. And he's thrown into the sea. And sort of vanquished. As, so this is the imagery of being vanquished by being thrown into the sea. And then the, and the renewed heavens and earth, always think renew. Whenever you read new, because Greek doesn't have a word for renew. And so we just use new. But we might mean by it, and what the church is understanding it to mean, namely the restoration. In that restored situation, the sea is no more. There's no, there's no place anymore from which an evil thing might come out. And, and challenge God or challenge God's people. That's all done away with. There's no more crying, hunger, thirst, pain, um, suffering. And even the places from which that comes, they're gone too. So you never have to worry that it might reemerge. So yeah, they, they, it's, the sea is used to wash. Uh, it's interesting to think about that's where all the, the stuff that's washed away goes, is into the sea. Same with Exodus. Um, the sea is used to wash away 
the assailant Egyptians as they're coming back to try and recapture Israel, right? As they're crossing through the Red Sea, water comes in. So now that water contains all of the badness that Israel's being led out and escaping from. So what do you do with all that badness? Eventually, the whole thing goes away in, in the imagery of Revelation. So I don't know if that's helpful. But there's, a, uh, there's another section in your notes that Dad put together, just some selected key New Testament chapters that um, might be especially helpful for us to reflect on. Do you want to make some extra comments? I haven't prepared anything. Sure. Uh, just uh, some special chapters for Catholics, uh, all Christians, of course, but I think we Catholics would do well to be uh, quite familiar with where these are found in the Bible. The genealogy and birth of Jesus, of course, and uh, the, uh, the whole story there of Joseph and Mary. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, beginning with the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. Matthew 16, the church, Peter, the papacy. This is a key passage from which we develop our understanding of the uh, magisterium. Matthew 26, the institution of the Eucharist, but also in Mark 14 and Luke 22. The Great Commission, making disciples of all the nations. So we're called to mission, and uh, this is a key passage there. Luke 1 and 2, we hear these chapters, especially uh, during the Advent season, Christmas season, the Annunciation and Birth of Jesus. Luke 24, Scripture and Sacrament on the Road to Emmaus. Touched on that a little bit last week. John chapter 2, Jesus and Mary at the wedding in Cana. John 6, familiar perhaps uh, more than some of the others here. The Bread of Life Discourse, Whoever Eats My Flesh and Drinks My Blood. Jesus' prayer in John 17, praying four times that his disciples may be one. Uh, united, one in him. It's a sad thing that um, Christians are so divided. Jesus prayed that we'd be one. John chapter 20, Jesus commissions his disciple apostles to forgive or to retain sins. Several verses there to which we often uh, refer uh, in discussions about confession. Uh, we'll hear some of our friends say, I confess my sins directly to God. I don't need to go through a priest. And uh, we also believe as Catholics in confessing our sins directly to God. We also believe in confessing our sins to God through the mediation of a priest because it is just so thoroughly biblical. This would be a chapter for that. John 21, Peter's Commission. It's all part of the Petrine, the Peter emphasis in the New Testament. In the list of apostles, you'll notice Peter is often, if not always, listed first. Why does the Catholic Church make so much of Peter? Why is our church named St. Peter? This would be one of the chapters that highlights the role of Peter. Acts 15, the first church council. Chad mentioned Vatican II. Vatican II is the last church council, uh, but there were a number of church councils starting with Acts 15, and then in the early centuries, 
uh, councils followed. Romans chapter 2, some people often think of James chapter 2 down below as stressing that salvation is not by faith alone. Uh, faith without works is dead, says James. St. Paul is just as emphatic on the same point in Romans chapter 2. So it's not just James 2, it's also Romans 2 and many other passages. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Yes, instituted up in some of those gospel passages, but here is a letter now, 1 Corinthians, developing more on the Eucharist and its centrality in the life of the church. Ephesians 3 and 4, one church. God didn't establish 30,000 varieties of churches. He established one church. Those two chapters are really helpful in understanding that. Ephesians 5, marriage as a figure of the church. Our marriage is meant to put Christ and the church on display. Here's what that love relationship looks like or ought look like. Colossians chapter 1, the role of suffering as filling up what is lacking. We Catholics make a big ado over the role of suffering and, uh, and often speak in terms of offering up our sufferings to accomplish effects in the lives of others. Colossians chapter 1, especially verse 24, would be a passage uh, there. First Timothy 3, holy orders, apostolic succession, passing on the um, mantle from the apostles to their successors. James chapter 2 already mentioned, faith without works is dead. That's that key passage. James chapter 5, anointing of the sick. Where do we get this idea about uh, anointing? Uh, I've had it. I'm so incredibly grateful for our pastor here, our priests here. We've anointed both my wife and me when we were facing serious uh, health issues. But James chapter 5 would be a key passage for that. You see, uh, Catholic teaching doesn't come out of thin air. I, I've been a Catholic seven years, studied my way in over a period of 10 or 12 years. I've yet to find any Catholic teaching that isn't ultimately anchored to Scripture in one way or another. We're just giving you a selection of passages where some of these teachings can be found. Why does the church differentiate between mortal and venial sins? Some sins are deathly in the sense that they are grave and they uh, cut off, shall we say, one's relationship with the <coughs> Lord. Other sins, not so. Is that biblical? Read 1 John chapter 5. And where do we get this notion that Mary is the queen mother from Revelation 12? It's all part of a very, very expansive teaching on Mary uh, in the scriptures. Uh, so this is just, obviously, it's just uh, a selection. But these will be some of the passages that you might hear referred to more often in the Catholic context than you might in some non-Catholic context. And, uh, and I just drew them together as a reference. We're through. Questions? I, I hope you've gained something in these three sessions. I mean, keep in mind where we're going. You received a kind of a roadmap of where this whole, uh, the way is heading in coming weeks. But Blake and Chad and I met earlier, and I know Blake met with, the, uh, with Father Clark and perhaps uh, the other uh, priests here. But in just kind of mapping out 
what's best to include? And we thought it'd be well to include a section on scripture. It's the story of scripture, uh, overview of what's going on between these books of Genesis and Revelation to give us more familiarity. And, uh, and then also then next week, why it is we believe the Bible as Catholic Christians? Why do we take it seriously? But why are we not what, what you might consider Bible only? Which topic came up a little earlier this evening? And how does that all work? And, uh, and then maybe just a few comments next week as well on, on how to interpret scripture. Father Worth wanted us to touch on that. So that's where we're headed next week. And then after that, I don't have it in front of me, but all kinds of other topics that will be coming up. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, St. Peter. Lincoln.com. God bless you.